0: Hi, welcome to Investment Essentials. I'm Algie Hall, tips editor of the magazine. I'm joined by my colleague Mark Robinson.
1: And a little bit later we'll be hearing from Joe Brown Freud, who's the Chief Executive of Asset Value Investors, and Nick Kerridge, co-head of Schroeder's Global Value Team. Algie, um, what is uh, investment essentials and what was the uh, what was the dynamic behind the piece?
0: Well, um Investment essentials is, you know, I like to think of it as kind of stock analysis meets desert island discs. Okay. Um, Basically, um, finding out what um, stock picking metrics certain top UK investors find most useful doing their jobs. So um, I've spoken to three of them, two of them we'll be hearing from, and I've found out what what they use to find value stocks.
2: The cyclically adjusted P.E. Discounts to net asset value. Profits turning into cash. The returns of the NAV. A, a net debt EBITDA or net debt profits. The EV to EBITDA or the dividend yield.
1: Indebtedness. Okay, this goes back to the, well, it's an age-old philosophy of value investing now. Uh, which uh, started in the US in in the 1930s, I believe, in the uh, in the wake of the the Great Depression.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it also it's evolved a lot. So I mean, I mean but also there's the question of, um, you know, what the heck is value? Because surely, whenever we're trying to buy stocks, we want value there, even if there's growth. We want to value that growth, and we want to have growth, which is worth more than we're paying for it this is what nick kirich had to say about his style of value investing
3: value has been around value as an investment style has been around for decades and decades and decades uh, when you hear farm managers talk about value they, they tend to kind of mean their perception of whether or not there's upside in shares but when we talk you know so-called valuation but when we talk mm-hmm. about value investing We're speaking about a very specific part of the investment universe—a very explicit style—and it's basically continuously focusing your efforts on the cheapest ten or twenty percent of the market. And you can filter that cheapest ten or twenty percent any way you like. You know, might be just a common PE or a price-to-book or a dividend yield—something very basic. But you are basically filtering the entire market and then looking at the cheapest part of it. And that's what you use to find the ideas. One of the things that's very interesting about cyclically adjusted valuations, in fact this is true of all valuations really over time, but in the market today we would perceive certain companies and industries as demonstrably being better than others. Your tobaccos are clearly better businesses than banks or Unilever and consumer staples are clearly better businesses than mining companies. But whilst that's a statement that sounds like it's a truism, the truth is, if you look over long enough periods of time, um, that's not true. The companies that are perceived as high quality change and evolve over time. So, though it's hard to remember, if you went back to 2005, 6 banks were perceived as some of the best businesses that you could possibly invest in. If you went back to the late 1990s, tobaccos were perceived as businesses that killed their own customers – Most people consider that a bit of a business flaw. So this perception of quality is one that whilst it always seems like this is the way it always is, it actually changes radically over time. So we're not very keen to compare industries with their own so-called industry valuations because we don't think that those are very consistent over time. So we do it in absolute terms and we simply look at the ones that are cheaper. And I think that gives us a more level-headed, more consistent framework for picking better companies over time rather than relying on, for example, you were to buy an investment where it looked cheap versus valuations that had been quite expensive for the last few years, but it turned out those valuations were unjustified and that cheapness wasn't really very cheap.
1: Well, uh, Benjamin Graham, I believe, who is uh, often associated with the uh, the commencement of uh, value investing, uh, talked about uh, the intrinsic value of companies. Yeah. W- what did he mean by that?
0: Often, it's to do with the assets the company has and paying a discount for them, which um, Joe's very keen on. This is what he had to say on the subject.
2: Well, to us, value is reflected in companies trading at discounts to net asset value. So value as a style means different things to different types of managers. To us, what we're looking for is companies that own assets. Those assets could be other businesses, other equities that may be listed, or companies that are unlisted. But essentially, to us, value investing really means finding companies that trade uh, at discounts to net asset value. So essentially what we're saying is we like to buy companies that own a pound of assets for a lot less than that pound. So if you think about a company that owns a variety of different businesses, each of those businesses can be sold, can be independently realised, and the sum of that realisable value is far more than the current share price. And that to us is the starting point for identifying what value is.
0: There are other ways to value intrinsic value for companies which don't have hard, tangible assets using things like the earning power of of um, a company. And then also their ways of trying to bring in the idea that some companies can re- generate above average returns or returns above their cost of capital consistently while, whilst they grow. So those, that, that can be valued in too, that future earnings stream. So it's a plethora of things, really, which fit into this value camp.
1: Does that also feed into something like uh, discounted cash flow analysis?
0: Most value investors are very sceptical about that because, I mean, there's so many assumptions in um, any discounted cash flow analysis. If there's something very the tangible... The amongst being chief amongst them. The, yeah, what, what, yeah, what the heck are we discounting? What, Yeah, what are we using as our discount rate? Yeah. And the investors I've talked to and also just... From an intuitive level, really, when we're talking about value, we're probably just talking about really cheap stocks. Nick Kirage.
3: A lot of the best investment philosophies, I believe, can be boiled down into very, very simple terms. The more complicated something sounds, the more clever someone tries to sound, you know, more often than not, those people, those kinds of philosophies tend to get themselves into trouble. So my perspective is always it should be made very, very simple. So at its, at its core, my job is simply trying to balance off the rewards that might be made from an investment versus the risks I'm taking and doing that as objectively as possible without turning myself into an emotional wreck, Okay. So I like metrics that try and give me a clue to identify both those potential rewards and those potential risks.
1: This was the basis of uh, uh, Benjamin Graham's uh, philosophy, or at least the reason that he took it up when he did, because after the, the major sell-off in markets, presumably there was any number of yeah. undervalued stocks you know, trading well below their net na- asset value. I mean, it would have been... Fairly straightforward to pick these up then. Well,
0: yeah, of course, they're the famous net nets, which were yep. um, associated with Graham, which were where, where the readily realizable net asset value was um, worth a lot more than the share price. I mean, you don't get those really now. But, um,
1: and of course, you look at the uh, example of the asset strippers during the 1980s, they were doing much the same thing.
0: Well, yeah, they, they, they weren't, but they, they were probably doing more of um, what British Empire does in terms of looking deeper, having a deeper analysis of what's actually on the books. Joe Brown, friend. To us, net asset value really means the realisable
2: value of those businesses today, which means that we have to value each of the underlying holdings. So if you take um, well, an investment trust, for example, it's fairly simple. It's certainly an investment trust that owns listed assets. It's very simple. Um, it would be the realisable value of those listed stakes. When you look at uh, an investment trust that owns private equity assets or an investment holding company that has private assets, we carry out a valuation of each of the the private businesses. And that's done by reference to listed peers and analysis of, of the various metrics, typically EV to EBITDA or price earnings multiples, and see how those compare to listed peers.
1: Uh, does that also feed into when you look at um, the funds that deal in special situations as well? I mean, very often if a company is going through uh, a particularly um, dire trading period or there's external issues or internal ones that have affected performance, sometimes it's easy to over, uh, overlook the actual value, the fixed asset value of a company.
0: Yeah, the, and the, well, the, yeah, and also the fixed assets, of course, can be a guide to the future potential of the, comp- of the company in question. And a lot of investors look at a, an, a cycle, an economic cycle, and try and look over that to get a fairer assessment of what value is on offer because they expect the earnings to rebound after they've um, fallen for a while. They'll come back. Nick kirridge
3: So the first, and for anyone who's ever read our blog on, on the value perspective, they'll see this a lot, is the Cape the cyclically adjusted P.E. There are many other names for this. You may have heard Schiller P.E. or 10-year average P.E. They all mean the same thing. They effectively mean taking today's share price and dividing it by the average profits of the last 10 years, the average earnings per share of the last 10 years. Now, why would you do that? Well, you do that because profits in any one year can frequently swing around. We've seen that through the last 5, 10 years. Many businesses are very cyclical, Um, Their profits go up, their profits go down, their margins go up, their margins go down. And yet many of those businesses have been around for decades. And they may be around for decades to come. So valuing them off any one year's worth of profits could be a very churlish thing to do. And with typical valuation metrics, a normal P.E., what will happen is just as the profits go to zero, the P.E. looks like it goes to a very high number because you divide very small profits into a share price and suddenly the valuation looks very expensive. But that's not the truth. The truth is, is that the share price tends to fall on that. And if you divided the share price by the average profits of the last 10 years, it would reveal a business that is very cyclical but is very, very attractive. So we like to look at that because it strips out the machinations of the economic cycle. And uh, goodness knows the economic cycle has had its machinations the last 10 years. So by doing that, it makes a more consistent way to look at companies. There could be lots of reasons that those average 10 years aren't a good guide, the last 10 years aren't a good guide to the future. And I can hear people talking about but what about newspaper stocks, Nick, or, you know, other companies where there's been a structural change. And that's right, there are. So you have to be quite careful using this in isolation. But on average, on average, the last 10 years do tend to be a very good guide to the future for most companies. It's a very powerful way to think about valuation.
1: Algy, if you were speaking to one of our readers who have never given much thought to to investing from this perspective, what are the the baseline sort of tips that you would give? Where where should they be looking and where should they start?
0: But one of the things which um, investors have to be very aware of when um, trying to adopt a value style is value traps. And often the difference between a great value play and a value trap, which is basically a cheap company which continues to get cheaper until eventually things get so bad that it looks expensive at any price <laughs> Yes, <laughs> and you've got your head in your hands yeah. but there's not much difference between them you know they will look very similar that's why the value share is great value because it looks so bad it looks like it could be the value trap share joe
2: brown there are probably hundreds if not thousands of companies that trade at some sort of discount to the theoretical asset value now very often those kind of discounts are a warning sign of a value trap And the discount exists for a reason. The underlying assets may be poor quality. The management of those businesses may have weak corporate governance. They could be invested in an industry that's uh, cyclical and due due to downturns. The discount would be a warning sign to stay away.
1: Well, it, it sounds as well that they're going to have to do uh, a little bit of legwork through the PNL and balance sheet and the cash flow statement as well.
0: Well, I, I mean, there's always legwork in investment if, if you want to maximise your chances of doing well. But um, what, what the Investment Essentials piece in the magazine has are a number of ways to identify promising opportunities. Nick Kerridge. You can't talk
3: about value investing without talking about value traps. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. The problem is that value trap is not, um, it's not a well-defined term like profits or free cash flow or CAPE. It means many things to many people. So the average person on the street, if they heard the word value trap, would think business that was going nowhere. So an HMV, for example, a structurally challenged business. I tend to think about value traps as businesses which it doesn't really matter how hard they swim. They're on a declining elevator. There is some structural impediment to them making returns. It could, be, it could be an HMV. That's probably a reasonable example. Or it might be a business that was very constrained by regulation or the structure of the industry. Airlines struggle very much to make returns on capital. So you have to kind of try and get behind that. But what I would say is that many people just think Value Trap is a company which takes a long time for the share price to go up and that's just being patient. So, you know, we measure patience in years, not in quarters or in months. And that's a very different perspective to many, you have to be quite careful about this, because you sometimes can use the term just value trap to simply justify giving up on an investment. And that, of course, is an incredibly poor thing to do. If it's just for emotional, re- I've just given up. So you've got to Make sure you understand what that term means, but then stick with it, obviously, and pay attention to it.
1: I think one of the points that you've made to me is uh, that when you're looking at value investing, many people might think, all right, we, 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 we we've identified the company, right, and we can make returns almost immediately. But really, you're looking at, it's a, it's a long-term play, value investing.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's to do with waiting. And I mean, the interesting thing... You need, talk- patience. You need, you need patience. You need patience. Yeah, and the interesting thing talking to value investors is that, very few of them really are interested in when the value is going to be realized. And generally, you know, over, over the long term, over 50 years, values massively outperformed growth and, um, and a, a world index in general. But it takes a lot of psychological fortitude to rough it out through those inevitable periods when value investing will underperform and um, go on to bag those great long-term returns. When we're talking about value stocks and cheap stocks and stocks where things are going wrong, we know from um, all the work that these pe- people have done in behavioural finance, that goes completely against the grain. Joe
2: Brown, friend. I think that value investors have to have conviction in what they do, because at times, in fairness, probably the same for most styles of investment, but at times the market will test you and the market will tell you that you're wrong and you're making a mistake. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to stick to your convictions, to stick to your framework of investing, certainly one that's been tried and tested over time, and to not get carried away by what others are doing and just to focus on, on what we believe to be the right thing. It's difficult and it's unpleasant, but I think uh, the important thing is to be aware that it, that it is going to happen. And, you know, when it happens, just to ensure that... You have a framework that you follow and the framework should give, and certainly in my case, has given me conviction that ultimately if we do the right thing when it comes to our style of investing and the work that we put into our analysis, ultimately the market will prove us right. There's undoubtedly career risk and investors may leave us and our clients may put us under pressure and may make us uncomfortable. But, you know, that's the stall we've set out for ourselves And I think the far more dangerous thing to do is to try and be things to all, different things to all men and and try and change our style because inevitably you'll change at the wrong point in time.
0: You have to either have a process which you really believe in, which I think these investors do, or you just have to be a bit crazy to be a value investor. Nick Courage.
3: I think we're probably all wired totally the wrong way around, to be honest with you. Um, I'm one of those people who, you know, I tend to get excited when I see share prices falling because I feel like that, you know, the kind of falling where things are falling very, very quickly, that tends to be emotional and therefore irrational to my thinking. Not always. Sometimes there's a good reason that's happening. But if you're a long-term investor, and we tend to be, the nature of being a value investor is you've got to be taking a five-year view because things are obviously tough, troubled, and you don't know whether or not they might be tough or troubled for another year, another two years before they recover. And so you're taking a long term horizon. But if you do that, you tend to see these things as a great opportunity. And some of the great investment returns that you've seen in the last 10 years have come from moments of great darkness, you know, buying house building stocks in 2009, when everyone thought the world was ending or high street retail companies in 2008 it is at those points where nobody's holding your hand it is difficult that's why we maintain that diversification but the rewards are phenomenal if you can maintain that psychological grip on what's going on and and simply be
1: you know pretty hard-headed well there we there we have it patience and discipline that's all you need
0: thank you to the producers of this show graham davies and alex newman and if you've enjoyed it